0: What's stopping you, 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 you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN stopping
1: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986 What's stopping
0: you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest?
1: What's stopping you? You, 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 you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, I am so glad that all of us have made it to Friday. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If that's you, if you are a, um, a Buddhist, a Baptist, uh, anything in between, and you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith, we'd love to uh, you know answer those for you on this program. That's why we are here. Here's our phone number, 833 833- 288 ewtn That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of the U.S. and Canada, please dial 1-205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email and the address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Berius, our producer. Matt Gabinski, our phone screener. Jeff Burson's on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just look for the comments box. That's where you want to put your question. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. And off we go. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing great. How are you?
2: I'm doing decent, thank you.
1: Looking forward to the weekend. I'm hoping.
2: Uh, always, always.
1: So what's what, what's shaking there at the Andrews household this weekend? You
2: know, I have I have lots of children, <laughs> grandchildren, pets, uh, you know, a, a mother, uh, and uh, uh, a yard. So there's there's everyone always has something for Dad to do.
1: Never a dull moment. Right. Very good. Well, I hope it turns out to be a good one for you. Here's an interesting email. This is from Ben in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, normally listening to us on Real Presence. He says, Dr. Andrews, some people seem aghast whenever a particular Bible story or passage is said to be allegorical. The trepidation seems to be fueled by a fear that Jesus's resurrection will be discounted as allegorical rather than historically true, a la Sister Joan Chittister or John Dominic Crosson. So does allegorical always mean 100% not historically true, or can it mean somewhat or mostly historically true, or even 100% historically true while still being allegorical? And how is it determined if something in the Bible is, quote, historically true or, quote, allegorical? And again, that's from Ben in Rapid City.
2: Yeah, Ben, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So first of all, let's, let's draw a distinction between the concept of allegory on the one hand and then what we might call figurative or symbolic writing on the other, uh, because they're not exactly, uh, they're similar concepts, but they're not, they're, they are distinct. And... In classical Catholic theology, allegory is a way of reading the Old Testament, in which the narratives and images, types and symbols of the Old Testament, are understood to refer to Christ in uh, in a kind of um, proleptic way, the type and antitype. And so, reading the Bible that way, someone like Saint Thomas Aquinas would take the position that historical narratives of the Bible that may very well have recounted historical events, the historical events themselves, the ones that are being spoken of in the Bible, those events were, in St. Thomas's mind, intended by God to anticipate and point to Jesus. Mm. And so allegory as such uh, doesn't mean that something's not historical. It means that whether it's historical or not, that the narrative was intended by God as a kind of anticipation of the person of the Messiah. And so it's a, it refers specifically to a way of reading the Old Testament referring to Jesus. Now that's different from speaking about a text as a pure symbol or a kind of figure. Um, now it's obvious to see in poetic forms when the psalmist says the trees of the field will clap their hands. Uh, we're not meant to infer that there's some species of ancient Near Eastern tree that that, you know, grew hands. <laughs> that's obviously a figure. Um, uh, when um, uh, you know when the when the Old Testament theologians would refer to God using anthropomorphic language, or uh, God's even referred, even analogized to a chicken in the Old Testament, like wow. a mother hen wow. that gathers her brood other, under under uh, her okay. wings. So right. God, you know, but God's compared to a chicken. God is not a chicken. That's obviously a figure of speech. Sure. That's a metaphor. Sure. Um, sometimes. There are narratives that function in a way that's obviously not intended to be referring to some historical personage. You might take the parables of Jesus, for example, which are meant to be—they're not just moralistic lessons. The parables of Jesus are meant to be uh, arresting stories that sh- that shock you out of your complacency and bring you to see reality from another point of view. Like when Nathan the prophet confronts King David by telling him the story of the man that stole the poor guy's ewe, The rich guy who has a whole bunch of sheep goes and takes the one you belonging to the poor man that the man loved and then serves it to his guests. And David is so incensed, he says, the man that did this must die. Nathan says, well, guess what, King? You're that guy. Oops. The point of the parable was to to conceal the moral until the gotcha moment. That's Mm -hmm. why Jesus, when the apostles said, why do you teach him parables? He says, because I don't want to be clearly understood. That's Matthew 13. I don't actually want them to be clear. I want to get you to the gotcha moment when you wake up and realize, oh, I'm actually the bad guy in this story that mm. Jesus is telling the parable against. Right? You're not meant to identify these as historical characters. You're supposed to see yourself in the place of the parable, probably as the bad guy, so that you can have a conversion experience. There are other texts where maybe it's a little bit more ambiguous. Are we talking about a historical figure or or uh, just a or just a poem? I'll give you an example: the Book of Job. Um, ancient interpreters like Pope Gregory the Great absolutely thought that Job was an allegory. In fact, Gregory's most famous text is the Moralia in Job, which is a lengthy allegorical um, explication of the book of Job. He also thought Job was a real person. Mm. Today, I think probably almost no Catholic interpreter would hold uh, that it's necessary to think that Job was an historical person. The point of the book of Job is to, in narrative and poetic form, to present a theodicy, that is a philosophical attempt to justify God in the face of evil. And the point of the thing is to have that philosophical conversion, not to speculate about, you know, who the historical Job was. So, um, but the ultimate answer to your question is, how do you know? Well first of all, I mean, I think it's it's perfectly legitimate to rely on the tools of scientific biblical criticism, archaeology, these kinds of things to, okay, what was the historical reality? Uh, and then see where Scripture matches up with that. And also, the tradition and guidance of the magisterium, when there are dogmatic issues at stake, we ultimately rely on the authority of the Church to tell us.
1: Very good. By the way, do you know who invented the allegory?
2: I feel like there's a rimshot coming. Al Gore. Oh, yeah.
1: There you go. I knew
2: it.
1: (laughs) Ben, thanks for your question. Stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN, our phone number 833-288-EWTN. Do you have a question uh, for Dr. David Anders? Maybe you'd like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. In any event, the number again, 833 833- 288 Phone lines are uh, filling up right now, but we do have one available for you. Are you a a one-cup-a-day coffee drinker? That's that's what I do. I have one cup of coffee right about 7 o'clock in the morning. That carries me through. Other people are drinking coffee throughout the day. Let me tell you about something wonderful you can now uh, get from EWTN's religious catalog, and that's Mystic Monk Coffee. It's a unique specialty coffee, helping support a cloistered monastery of Carmelite monks in the pristine mountains of Wyoming. Crafted from ethically sourced green coffee beans, every delicious cup of coffee is perfect for any occasion. The monks lovingly roast in small batches to ensure the absolute best flavor possible. Ground ground decaf and whole bean coffees come in a 12-ounce airtight bag for freshness, and right now they're selling 10-pack single-serving Monk Shots. These are uh, coffee pods uh, available for all major single-serve brewers like the Keurig. You can go to EWTNRC.com to see all the delicious flavors of Mystic Monk Coffee. Do check it out. Mystic Monk Coffee now available through EWTNRC.com. We're going to get to the phone lines in just a moment here. Let me give you that number again. 833 288 ewtn That's 833-288-3986. And a quick reminder here that uh, phone lines certainly do fill up quickly on Fridays. So rather than hanging on to that question all weekend long, uh, call in now, 833-288-EWTN. Here's an email from Matt in Atlanta. He says, I am a recovering agnostic. My entire family is is Protestant. I am writing to your program in particular because you combine intellectual bona fides with genuine compassion. That being said, I have found that some Catholics spend more time going after Protestant doctrines instead of promoting the moral life or reaching out to agnostics and other faiths. So how can I make the leap to join the Catholic Church, knowing what some hardliners think about my Protestant wife and family. Thanks in advance, Matt, in Atlanta.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I'm deeply sensitive to that. In fact, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine on the way over here. I was in the car on the way to the network, and we were talking about the work of being Catholic apologists and, and how I was sharing how my view of the mission has changed slightly over the decades. And uh, earlier in my theological career, I was far more interested in making sure that I had defeated uh, people who were wrong, you know, and made sure that they thought the right things. And, of course, that's important. I don't want to diminish that. But I I, I think I have a greater appreciation now for the fact that ultimately the point of the dogmas is to change your life ethically. And that's the way the Catechism treats them. It says dogmas are lights, lights, L-I-G-H-T-S. Yeah that are meant to enlighten our path. That's a that's a metaphor for our, our moral behavior, the way we live our lives, the kind of human beings we are. And so it takes something like the dogma of the Trinity, for example. Well, the point of the dogma of the Trinity is so that I can reflect on the loving interpersonal nature of God so I can become that kind of person, that I can imitate the character of God. That's yeah. the point. Of it. The point of the incarnation, the dogma of the incarnation, I mean the incarnation has many points, but the point of reflecting on the dogma is so that I can appreciate... Um, the, the person of Christ, his divine authority, and seek to bring my life into conformity with his. Uh, uh, in The Imitation of Christ by um, Thomas Aquinas, uh, mm-hmm. one of the earliest texts, one of the earliest chapters of the book, uh, he says, what good does it do you to brilliantly debate the nature of the Trinity if you do so with pride and are therefore displeasing to the Trinity? Yeah. Right? And so I still want to present the truth of Catholic dogma but I'm conscious that ultimately, the Catholic dogma is a means to an end. The dogmas don't save us. It's the realities to which they point. That is the loving God, his son Jesus Christ, relationship with them through the ethical life and the love of my neighbor, uh, that and the life of virtue. That's that's ultimately what's going to y- unite me to God in heaven, and that's what my focus needs to be. But the the, the desire to reduce my moral project to to the pursuit of some kind of ideological purity, that is not unique to Catholics. That is a pervasive human tendency. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I think human beings are sort of naturally tribalistic, in fact, social psychologists have demonstrated the, 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 in, sort of the genetic tendency to tribalism in human beings. remember I was reading Jonathan Haidt one time, social psychologist from NYU, in his book The Righteous Mind. And he, he talks about experiments where, the, you know, when you were a kid and you're in grammar school and you have to play football, and they would divide the teams up by, you know, randomly assigning kids to, you're the shirts and you're the skins. Oh, yeah. You know? And, uh, and so the, this, the teams are random. And he says, when you do this with grammar school kids, when you divide them up like that in random assortments and make them compete against each other, and then you actually interview them about what they think about members of the other team, invariably, they will think that their side is morally superior to the other team. Wow. When the selection criteria is completely random. Yeah. Right? It's just, we just do that as human beings. We, 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 uh, uh, we think that in-group people are better than out-group people. And drawing the, the dogmatic boundaries is mm-hmm. how we do it as Catholics, or any kind mm-hmm. of Christian, really. I mean, Presbyterians do this, Baptists do this, everybody uh-huh. has a tendency to do this. And it's a tendency to confirm uh, our preference for our own in-group think. Now, how do I regard that as a Catholic apologist? Well, I think that's evidence of a kind of human sin. I mean, that's pride uh, and, uh, and, a, and egotism, a sort of you know group in-think. Uh, these are the kinds of things I believe that Christ came to overturn. So when I look at the ministry of Jesus, He dealt with that in His own time. Pharisees that said, "Hey, unless you, you know, unless you cut the cookie exactly the way we do, mm. then you're a terrible human being." And Christ said, "No, it's not whether you tithe mint, dill, or cumin; it's whether you have love or justice or mercy in your heart that matters." That's why John the Baptist says, "Don't say we're going to have uh, we have Abraham for our father. God can raise up children for Abraham from these very stones." And so the Catholic who says you know, I'm, I am beloved of, of God simply in virtue of being Catholic and being right all the time, misses the point of the Catholic faith, which is conversion to charity in the life of virtue. Sure. So when you witness that in Catholics who are in leadership mm-hmm. or, or, or spokespeople for the Catholic Church, it doesn't invalidate the Church, it just really it, it shows you that Catholics— are also in need of the grace that transforms us into the likeness of Christ. And that doesn't happen simply by assenting to dogma. Right. Hey,
1: Madden and Atlanta, thank you so much uh, for your email today. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Emma, a first-time caller from Elkhorn, Wisconsin, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Emma, happy Friday to you. What's on your mind today?
0: Thank you. Um, I recently was talking to I was telling you, I was telling the screener, I am actually, I'm a Catholic, but I was talking to somebody who is a non-believer at all, Um, and what I was explaining to him is that, you know, we see little miracles that God gives us and speaks to us in in different little tiny things, and what he threw back at me was that, you know, he says, you think that he did this nice thing for you, this simple little nice thing for you, but then he abandons the kids that are suffering people that are suffering that you know there's real real suffering out there and but he's gonna help you out with your minor things so he's his argument is that there is no God because if there was a God God wouldn't let that happen to those children um, and help me out with my minor small little miracles that I I see on a daily basis
2: yeah I don't know, I didn't... sure thanks I really appreciate the question so I'm I'm really sensitive To your atheist friend's critique, and I'm deeply appreciative of your spirituality. So I think there's something to be said for both of these positions. Let me share, uh, first of all, from the atheist point of view, what I think is correct and then where I think maybe that's off. Um, It is a fact that human beings find spurious correlations we, we, we like to find patterns, and we like to find significance in things that uh, might better be described as random. Mm. Um, pareidolia, the tendency to see faces, for example, where they don't exist. But it's just like when you look at the cloud, and you go, oh, that's, you know, that's Uncle John up there in the cloud. You know, there is no Uncle John in the cloud, but we like to impress our imaginations on, on random assortments of data and to find meaning in them. And there is a, there is a tendency in spirituality to be very selective in the way we attend to our own experience, to confirm um, a a prejudice we have about the way the world operates that tends to place us at the center of things. And I think sometimes it can be very harmful. So, you know, if if I begin with the assumption that I am one of God's elect, and that, you know, I'm precious and special to him in a way that my neighbor isn't, and uh, and you know every little mercy that happens to me is a sign of that specialness and that that and so i'm sort of primed to look f- at the events in my life to confirm that sense of my own uniqueness and my own you know in my own personal intimacy with god construed in that way that it might very well blind me to the real suffering of other people and to the tragedies of life and 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 it may also be dangerous to me spiritually in another way, and that is that it's hard to maintain that sense of God and that, you know, I'm, I'm best buds with God and Jesus is my co-pilot and all that when major, major tragedy strikes your life. Because then you have to say, well, why was, you know, God kind to me yesterday because mm-hmm. he gave me fluffy bunnies and today, you know, my child has died um, or I have terminal cancer or or some other horrific horrible yeah. thing. And, and so... W- w- I think Christians need to have a a spirituality of intimacy with God that can accommodate both of those realities. And, uh, and you know, I remember I had an atheist professor in college or graduate school. He was a a professor of Bible, for example, actually, and he took great offense. Wait a minute. A professor, a a Bible
1: professor who's an atheist? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. He was quite engaging, actually. I learned a lot from the guy. Okay. But uh, it used to bother him no end when uh, his evangelical Protestant students would come in with all these testimonies of sort of intimate relationship with God, and particularly, I remember he commented on, I think it was a Miss America pageant he watched, where the winning candidate gave thanks to God, and his response was, you know, God cares, according to you, God would seem to care more about women in bikinis than he does about uh, Jewish children who died in the Holocaust, and this guy was Jewish, and his atheism was re- Holocaust-related. He he couldn't reconcile the existence of God with that kind of horrific evil. So I, I really I think that is something like that's a point. Yeah, and I think that there's a there's a kind of um, uh, you know a trivializing of the suffering of other people and a, uh, and being too quick to f- you know to see myself as a as special uh, that can emerge in that kind of spirituality, and I think that's a problem. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, a, a spirituality that is alert to the goodness that God has put in the world. I mean, this, Genesis tells us that God made the whole world and said it was good and so mm. my experience of the good, the true and the beautiful um, is something that pervades everything and and I can I can uh, I can habituate myself to uh, delving more deeply into the true, the good, and the beautiful. And that would include in things like in the faces of the suffering poor, right? Um, Mother Teresa suffered enormously in the face of the human evil that she experienced every day, uh, but her response to that was, to was as an act of faith, to believe very deeply in the dignity and the humanity of those that suffer. And so she had a way of bringing those two things together. On the one hand, confronting the awful, the, the mysterious horror of evil, Yeah with a, a, a faith commitment to finding the good and the true and the beautiful in everyone and everything, but, you know, not in a way that was egocentric. Hey, look how great I am that God has done this nice thing for me, but rather, mm-hmm. I'm committed to pursuing what's good, true, and beautiful as a sign of God's presence in the world wherever I go. It's a sort of an ethical mandate as yeah. opposed to a you know, kind of an egocentric um, confirmation bias. Sure. Emma, thank you so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you.
1: And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ash from the Philippines is watching us today on YouTube. Ash says, Zoroastrianism is considered one of the world's oldest known living religions. It's still being taught in many universities as a religion. So my question, does Zoroastrianism share any similarities with Catholicism?
2: Oh, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Um, and, uh, yes, I studied, uh, first question, uh, it, well, you said it's still being taught in, in, uh, in universities. That's true. I studied Zoroastrianism when I was in grad school, mm. among other things. Um, there are a lot of Zoroastrians, well, there are not a lot of Zoroastrians anywhere, but there's a significant Zoroastrian community in, uh, in India, and uh, I was actually taking a grad course on religions of India, and that's my first exposure to the tradition. Mm. Um, now, are there any similarities? A few. A few. Not many. Uh, so Zoroastrianism has a has a sacred text. They have a sacred text. Um, they uh, they are metaphysically dualistic. So they tend to think that reality is divided, you know, into the good and the bad, the light and the dark. And uh, while Catholicism eschews a strict metaphysical dualism, ultimately everything traces back not to two sources but to one. God is the source of everything. There is a kind of um, you know, dualistic antagonism and the way Catholics construe the moral universe. The, the world is a battle between good and evil, and we need to be on the side of the good. Now, the way Zoroastrians differ from Catholics, in my experience, and I'm not that knowledgeable, is they they tend to view it as like everyone who's a Zoroastrian is on the good side, the non-Zoroastrians are on the bad uh. side, and, you know, St. Paul talks about that line of good and evil running through his own personality. So it's not just a battle against the evil unbelievers. Mm -hmm. It's really a battle against the wickedness, even in my own heart. There you go. Uh, Ash, uh, thanks for watching us in the Philippines. And and I should say, that's more true of uh, Zoroaster himself probably than it is of modern Zoroastrians.
1: Okay. Very good. So uh, thanks again for uh, checking us out in the Philippines. That's why we're called the Global Catholic Network. In a moment we're going to get to Moses in Lakeside, Arizona. Moira, a first-time caller from New Hope, Pennsylvania. Still time for your calls at 833 288 ewtn That's 833 288 3986 and it's called to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called to communion here on EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six Moses listening to us in Lakeside, Arizona on Sirius XM channel 130. Hello, Moses, what's on your mind today?
0: Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I got a quick question about the commandments, specifically the third commandment. You see different variations of the third commandment uh, everywhere. And, and more importantly, I, I heard Dr. David Anders talk about how Catholics don't observe the Sabbath can you elaborate on that? Because I think a lot of Catholics, like myself, are like, wait a minute, get in, get in depth with that. Go deeper on that, please.
2: Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, we don't refrain from work on the seventh day of the week in honor of the, se- of the seventh day of creation where God refrained from work, as we find in the, the creation accounts in the book of Genesis. Uh, we don't stone people to death who work on the Sabbath, or excommunicate them from the Christian community. We don't celebrate the Sabbath. That's Sabbath celebration. It's, it's refraining from work on the seventh day of the week in commemoration of God's act of creation. We don't do that. Uh, in Mark chapter 16, verse 2, we read that on the first day of the week, um, the day after the Sabbath, very earlier on the first day after the Sabbath, They went to the tomb and found it empty. Right, right. The resurrection took place the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. Mm -hmm. So Christians began the practice of gathering on the first day of the week, not to refrain from labor, but to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. And uh, for the first several centuries, uh, Christians, you know, who had jobs in the Roman economy would have gotten up early on Sunday morning, gone to their Christian gathering, celebrated the Eucharist, heard the word of the, of the, word, the, ugh, word of the Lord proclaimed, yeah. and then gone about their business. You know, if they were slaves, they went back to their households mm-hmm. and served their masters. If they were shopkeepers, they went back to their shops and sold their wares. Uh, and that's the way the Church existed for several centuries. It wasn't until the Christianization of the Roman Empire that the idea of making uh, Sunday the celebration of the Lord's resurrection a day when people could also refrain from work in order to hallow the entire day really became the culture of the Christian community. Couldn't have really before, not yeah. possible. And uh, and so you know there is a principle in social justice for refraining from unnecessary labor on Sunday. Um, and that you know there's another justification for the Sabbath in the Old Testament, which is to let your servants have time off, so you don't work them to death. Yeah, and that that principle still pertains. That people ought to be given time to worship God, to refresh their bodies, and to spend time with their families. And the, the public worship of God is really important to the church and also to the civic community. Um, and so there are commonalities between the Jewish Sabbath and Christian Sunday, uh, but they're they're fundamentally different feasts. And in fact, drawing the distinction was something that was fairly important to the apostolic fathers. The Didache, for example, uh, goes out of its way to, to point out that the 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 liturgical feasts of Christians, of which Sunday is the preeminent, Mm -hmm. are not the same as the liturgical feasts of Jews, of which the Sabbath would be preeminent.
1: Right, right. Uh,
2: Moses, does that make sense to you?
0: Yes, yes, it does. I'm, I'm like, writing all this stuff down. Sure. I just, I, I love the deep dive, because I think many many folks are confused about this.
2: Now, if you want a deep dive, the deepest of dives, I really recommend you read the Apostolic Letter from John Paul II entitled DS Domine, Day of the Lord, and it's a it's a lengthy theological exposition of the Feast of Sunday and its relationship to the concept of the Sabbath.
1: And that's available uh, by going to EWTN.com. Uh, we have that document and all of the papal documents uh, right there.
2: Hey, there's another little website you might have heard of called the Vatican. Oh, yeah. They have it, too.
1: So you can go to either EWTN yeah. or the Vatican. You'll get it both places. Vatican V A. Uh, Vatican.va is, is where you would go for that. Also, if you want to check out the podcast of this program uh, to refresh what you heard uh, Dr. Anders say— you can uh, get that at EWTNradio.net. Charles will have that posted for you in about an hour or two. EWTNradio.net. Yeah, so
2: far, they don't have Call to Communion on Vatican uh, Radio. No. Atlanta, so you got to go to EWTN for that one. We're working on working it. On that. We're
1: working on it. Moses, thanks so much for your call. Here is Moira, um, a first-time caller from New Hope, Pennsylvania, listening on SiriusXM, Channel 130. Moira, uh, what's on your mind today?
0: Oh, good afternoon, and thank you for taking my call. Um, my question is, I was listening to an exegesis this morning on today's Gospel, and it's a Catholic exegesis, and it's, the host said something that really concerns me, and it was along the lines of um, when the Son of Man returns, uh, obviously, which is Jesus, and the host said that Jesus, Actually, came back in seventy A.D. around the time of uh, the rebuilding or the um, the temple, and it just didn't sound really right to me. So I thought Dr. Anders could uh, lend some light to that subject or that assertion.
2: Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So there is a there is a school of biblical interpretation applied particularly to the apocalyptic texts of the New Testament. The apocalyptic texts are those that talk about end-of-world stuff, uh-huh. you know, the stars falling from the sky and the heavens being shaken and this kind, of moon turned to blood, all that language. And uh, it's called preteritism, this particular school of interpretation, preteritism. And it maintains that much, if not all, of the apocalyptic language in the New Testament actually refers to events that took place in the 1st century. And the origin of preteritism uh, actually is a, it's Catholic. It's a Catholic uh, theological innovation uh, fomented by the Jesuit order in the 16th century to specifically counter the Protestant position that the Pope was the Antichrist. It was very common in the 16th century, and not unheard of today, the Protestants to say the Pope is the Antichrist of the Book of Revelation, and uh, and the Jesuits said, well, you know, you can't really make that claim if the Antichrist is a first century character, namely Nero Caesar. If yeah, that's the Antichrist, yeah. then then he can't be the Pope. And so it was a rhetoric. It was a polemical tool to thwart this Protestant uh, interpretation. Uh, it has since been become very popular among certain Protestants, Preteritism. Mm. And uh, because there there seems to be, in both the sayings of Jesus and in St. Paul, such a heavy expectation of Christ's imminent return. Like, you're not going to stop going through the towns of Israel before you see the Son of Man coming with power. Or St. Paul to the Thessalonians, and he says, you know, some of you people have fallen asleep, i.e. died— but for those of us that are still alive at the mm-hmm. coming of the Lord, and it's pretty clear from the context that he's talking about people in his own day yeah. with the expectation of being there when Jesus comes back, and uh, and so how do you fit that 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 imminent expectation like right, together with the course of history that's two thousand years old? Well, what some interpreters want to argue uh, is that you could interpret, and I'm not. Look, I'm not necessarily endorsing this opinion. I'm just explaining it. You could interpret uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD as a kind of coming of the Lord in power. It's not the Mm. final eschatological coming at the end of time on the clouds of glory when he's going to raise the living and the dead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it definitely is a fulfillment of at least part of his Messianic prophecies about what was going to happen to the people in his own day, and the kind of pains that were going to come on Jerusalem, and woe to you, Bethsaida, and Chorazim, and so forth. Um, and of course, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem was horrific. Christ had actually said, it'll be suffering unlike any that you've seen since the beginning of the world, and in fact, that took place. And uh, and so it's a way of saying, okay, there's there's something to that. There's something to this emphasis on first century fulfillment and the destruction of jerusalem that does seem to play heavily into into christ's prophecies and into what actually happened historically uh, without without uh denying that there is a final eschatological coming at the end of time all right
1: myra we hope that's uh, helpful for you today thanks for your so much for your call today
2: now, you don't have to read it that way the catholics are not obligated to hold a preterist position This right. is just one school of biblical interpretation and there are many within the catholic church
1: very good And thanks again for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. John watching on YouTube this afternoon. John says in Mark 13 verse 20, who are the elect and why are they referred to in the past tense?
2: Um, yeah, so, we, again, we're talking about this apocalyptic end-of-days stuff, mm-hmm. and the text reads, if the, And if the Lord had not, shut, had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Okay, so the elect here and elsewhere in Scripture are those whom God foreknows will be saved. Okay. All right. And uh, the Catholic position is that if you get to heaven, you do so only by God's grace. God has chosen you. He, the The preeminent example of election is the election of Christ. God the Father chose the person of Jesus Christ uh, to be the means of saving the world. Mary was elect. Uh, God did not choose just any virgin from Israel, but this particular girl was picked out from the beginning of time. This In the same moment that God, in eternity past, decreed incarnation of Christ. He also decreed the immaculate conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary to be the mother of God. Yeah. So that she's part of that divine decree. Israel was elect in Abraham. God chose Abraham. He, a lot of people in Mesopotamia, God picked Abraham. said, okay, Abraham's your job. You get out of here. We're going to make you a great nation. He chose Moses. He chose the people of Israel. Um, and, and he chose the church. Now, where people get bent out of shape about the concept of election is, are you saying that Well, only people in the church are saved. Never said that. I like to go back to the election of Abraham. What was Abraham for? That through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. What is the church for? So that through the ministry of the church all the nations of the world will be blessed.
1: Beautiful. Call to Communion here on EWTN. If you're just joining us and perhaps you missed part of the show, you can check out the Encore tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Again, 11 p.m. Eastern for the Encore of today's Call to Communion here on EWTN. Paul listening in Olympia, Washington on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Paul. What's on your mind today, sir? You had a question about my
0: elderly parents. They received communion at home from the Eucharistic minister,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so my dad's 92, my mom is 86, I believe, and so I asked the administrator at the, at the Church if they need to be properly disposed with the one-year requirement for doing confession, and she said that that requirement is waived for the elderly. And I just wanted to see Dr. Andrews' opinion on that, if that sounds correct.
2: Okay, thank you. So So there's a—let's draw two distinctions here. It's one thing to talk about the, op- the, the canonical obligations of the elderly. It's another thing to talk about their spiritual needs. So there are a lot of canonical obligations that don't pertain when you're elderly and you can't maintain them. Like you don't have to fast and you, you may not have to go to mass and you, a lot of things you don't have to do because you can't. You can't physically do them. Mm. Um, but the fact that you're not obligated in law to do something doesn't mean that doing it is a bad idea. And if anyone is trying to dissuade you, from perta- for obtaining the sacraments for your parents, then, then that person is dead wrong. So, I mean, I remember the holiest death. I haven't witnessed a lot of deaths in my life, but a few. The holiest death I ever witnessed was the death of my good friend Lambert Greenan, Father Lambert Greenan, who was a Dominican priest of the Irish province, and he died at the age of 101. You, you could not imagine the, the, the quantity and quality of sacramental accompaniment that this man had at the end of his life. I mean, he had priests from the network. He had the bishop of the diocese. I mean, they, everybody wanted to go out and anoint Father Lambert and hear his confession and give him viaticum. And, I mean, it was, uh, it was a real spectacle, let me tell you something. And then he died with the sisters and friends gathered around him praying the rosary. I mean, this was mm. like the best attended death you could yeah. possibly imagine. It was beautiful. And uh, I, I, my son was there, and I've, I said, I want you to remember this day. Like, this is the way you want to die. This is the way to get it done, you know, and uh, and and so Viaticum, that final Holy Communion before before passing on. I mean, this is a this is a really really important tradition in the church's history. So much so that in the First Nicene Council, back in the day in the fourth century, it wasn't wasn't uncommon for people being disciplined by the church to be excluded for communion for many years, and uh, and the canons of the Council of Nicaea said, remember, if somebody's in danger of death. You throw out that discipline, you make sure they get viaticum. You make sure they get viaticum. Yeah. And along with it, you want confession, you want the anointing of the sick, you want the apostolic pardon, you want the whole kit and caboodle, and you want it as much as possible. right? So who cares about obligation? Mm-hmm. I-, I want preparation. Sure.
1: There you go. Appreciate that. Here's a question. You know, from-
2: we know what we call, in, in my office, what we call the lay minister who stands between you and the priest and won't let you get the sacraments? Mm. Moat dragons. Moat dragons. Moat dragons. We're like, oh, i got to get around the moat dragon. Love it. That's fantastic. Call to communion
1: here on EWTN. Ashley, right here in Birmingham, says, I went to a funeral yesterday, and some Protestants asked why we did not, quote, finish the Lord's Prayer. Now, I know it's not in the Gospel, but how did that extra line come to be anyway?
2: Yeah, there are two different manuscript traditions of the Lord's Prayer. And what I mean by that is, we don't have the original texts that came down to us from St. Matthew or St. Mark or yeah. St. John. Uh, we have the Bible in thousands of different ancient manuscripts, and they can be—you can biblical scholars group them into uh, into families. And so there's a Byzantine family of manuscripts, and there's a Alexandrian family of manuscripts, and other really, others. really, yeah. and they show variations. Okay, and there there are there are textual variants between them, and and. Uh, uh, biblical scholars tend to prefer the shorter reading, right? When you when you come across a mm. biblical text and the one version has something longer and the other one has something shorter, the, the thought is a scribe is more likely to have inserted something than taken it away. I see. You know? And uh, and so the liturgical form of the Lord's Prayer has always been the shorter version. Hmm. Um, and which so you have not not only from from the science of lower textual criticism, but also from sacred traditions of confirmation that the way the Catholics are doing is probably, you know, the way that it came down to us from Christ. And the, the longer version that Protestants like to use it comes from a different manuscript tradition. It's beautiful. it's nothing theologically objectionable to yeah, it, but yeah, that's fine. Yeah. There you go, Ashley. Thanks
1: for listening to us right here in uh, Birmingham. Here's an anonymous email that came in. Uh, Dr. Anders. some of our closest friends and family members are Catholics who do not care for the teachings of the Church, in particular around LGBT issues and abortion. I don't know how or if I should engage in conversation about these topics, since they are very emotional. I don't want to burn any bridges with people that I truly care about. I am typically the type of person that avoids conflict and internalizes feelings, but this is pressing on my mind. Any advice is appreciated. Thanks, Anonymous.
2: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. Um, In my judgment, people who are deeply ideologically committed and that would be true of Catholics and non-Catholics alike. Yeah, um, have one abiding concern, and that is to validate and confirm their ideological prejudices, and they only want to engage with contrary positions in order to refute them. Mm. I mean, that's 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 been my experience in life when Kay. people are really ideologically committed. And, uh, and it's been, I mean, it's been validated by social science. I mean, we, b- people have confirmation bias. They like to believe what they believe. They don't like to upset the apple cart, and they're not generally open to, to contrary points of view. So knowing that in advance, <coughs> it's uh, how you make headway uh, is tricky. And, and there are, I've got a couple insights for you. So one is that uh, you, you, you make a lot more headway approaching people empathetically, and trying to appreciate their point of view no matter how absurd it might seem on the face of it. So Hilary Belloc, a great Catholic apologist from the early 20th century, once said that heresies survive by the truth that they contain. And so there's, there's something about, I mean, I think one of the wickedest ideologies in the planet that ever crossed the face of the earth, it has been responsible for the death of millions, is Marxism. I just think Marxism is atrocious. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a scintilla of insight in Marx, right? I mean, he obviously was distressed about a real problem, which was the social condition of the working classes. So I can I can find solidarity with a Marxist over that social concern, even if I'm gonna throw out ninety nine percent of the ideological elaboration. Right? There there's something there of the human that you yeah. can appreciate and find compelling and even if it's a grain. Even if it's a grain. And so I think I think that it's it's always helpful to try to approach anybody with appreciation and to, with a genuine desire to hear what they have to say, no matter how absurd it might strike mm-hmm. you on the face of it, and and go in with the attitude of, I'm going to try to learn something. And that I don't, it's not necessarily a tit for tat. It's not a kind of a bargain where I get to listen to you, now you have to listen to me. It's a, it's a genuine desire to be human with somebody and to appreciate them for who they are, even if they don't reciprocate. And then if you can do that, generously and over time and build relationship you you may win the right to share your point of view uh, because they genuinely care about you and they're not threatened by what you have to say right so that's 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 always true. that approach is always <coughs> true. Um, a- another thing is that people will sometimes be open to argument when the seed of doubt has been sowed in their own mind regarding their own ideology. so um, when when they discover an internal inconsistency in their own worldview, uh, if they discover something that's, that, you know, from another tradition, oh, they're quick to tear it apart, but they leave their own tradition unassailed. When they discover that internal consistency, inter- inconsistency in their own tradition, then that, that, that's a crack that begins to widen. Um, and, you know, it's hard to place that crack there, but, but asking questions, asking questions. So there's a, She's an atheist now, but Megan Phelps Roper, who was a member of the Westboro Baptist Church and uh, involved in that group that, you know, would do a lot of really controversial, far-out things, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And was really ideologically committed to that point of view. Uh, I heard her story one time, and she talked about how a a Jewish atheist man uh, just asked her questions about her own perspective Mm -hmm. without any kind of threat. Uh And he asked really good questions that got her thinking about what she thought. And she discovered an inconsistency in her own worldview that ultimately led to unraveling the entire thing. Wow. Right? And, uh, I mean, that, that happened to me, too. I mean, I remember a moment when I was a very anti-Catholic uh, Protestant bigot, and I, I watched a presentation by a Catholic ethicist on the ethics of abortion. Now, I agreed with him on the conclusion. I thought abortion was wrong. Yeah. But he gave arguments in natural law that had never occurred to me before. And it, it it really, you know, because I was disposed to agree with his conclusions, mm-hmm. it made me more open to his line of argumentation, which proceeded in a method that was not very Protestant. And so it, it it created in me a kind of appreciation for Catholic moral theology long before I was disposed to become Catholic. But it was a seed of doubt. And things like that began to pile up in my life over the course of years that gradually dissolved the pillars of my Protestantism and made me very disposed to become Catholic. Thanks so much for your email. Here is uh, Franco in San Antonio,
1: listening on the great Guadalupe radio. Hey, Franco, what's on your mind today, sir?
0: Hi, uh, can you all hear me?
1: Yes, go right ahead.
0: Okay, awesome. Hi, David, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, Here's my question. I was listening to a YouTube video last night of a Christian preacher. He was uh, uh, debating a Catholic man, and he basically was trying to make the point that Jesus said that You should not call mary blessed uh he references that in luke 11 verse 27 to 28 where uh, a woman comes up to jesus saying blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you and jesus replies saying blessed rather are those who hear the word of god and obey it and he was using that verse to say that oh jesus said that you shouldn't call mary blessed and he doesn't even call her mother uh i know that's not the correct interpretation of the bible uh, I was wondering if, if you could provide the correct interpretation and something that... Support, yeah, uh, so
2: America. I, I think, appreciate the call. I, I think your your internet uh, apologist has not read the Bible <laughs> because he has ignored Luke one forty eight. Mary says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mm-hmm. That's what Mary says. That's what the Scripture says. Yeah. All generations will call me blessed. Yeah. So I guess, according to this Protestant... All generations are wrong. Guess <laughs> 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 that's, that's what Scripture tells us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the idea that we, we shouldn't call anyone blessed is absurd. It's absurd. It's obvious from the context here that what Jesus is condemning is the same thing that John the Baptist condemned when he said, don't say that I have Abraham for my father. God can raise up children from these very stones for Abraham. Rather, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. It's reliance on mere uh, lineal descent to establish my relationship with God, rather than the ethical life. Now, we are in Christ through our adoption to the ethical life. By grace, we become new creatures. It's not natural birth, it's rebirth in the Holy Spirit that makes us members of Christ's body, and in that context, it's perfectly reasonable to speak about spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. We're not, we're not holy or accepted by God in virtue of our natural parentage, uh, and that's what Jesus is teaching us. Yeah. But we certainly can say, as St. James does in his epistle, that the prayer of a righteous person avails much. Not everybody's righteous. Yeah. And some people are more effective in the spiritual life and the prayer life than others because of their righteousness.
1: Franco, thanks for your call. Uh, Michaela in Nebraska, we've got about 30 seconds. Can you give us your question real quick? Michaela?
0: Yes, I. our priest... Can you hear me? Yep. Uh, try, try,
1: yeah, go right ahead. Go ahead.
0: Okay. Okay. Our Our priest, when he about the second coming, speaks of that as the final judge be heaven and every and hell. Equal will not exist.
2: Yeah. Well, he's a heretic. <laughs> I mean, a, heretic, a heresy is defined by canon law as someone that obstinately denies a dogma of the Catholic faith, and it's that the existence of hell is a dogma of the Catholic faith. And if he's denied that there is a hell. Um, then, uh, then that uh, that makes him a heretic.
1: Well, there you go, Michaela. Glad we could get you in. We have kind of a funky phone connection there, uh, but basically, Michaela's priest said there's going to be no hell after the second judgment, and uh, Dr. David Andrews nails it. It's a heresy. I mean, that's a, that's a heresy. Of I mean, no, we can
2: we can be nuanced in the way we talk about hell, but we can't we can't deny its existence without denying a dogma of the faith. Dr. David Anders, have a great weekend. Thank you. We hope that everybody has a great weekend
1: and that you'll join us again on Monday for another edition of Call to Communion. For Dr. David Anders, I am Tom Price. We will see you again. Have a great weekend. God bless.